North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Today on The Impossible State, we have two of the very top experts when it comes to North Korea. We have Joseph Bermudez, Jr. of CSIS, who is our satellite imagery analyst. And of course, we have Dr. Victor Cha, our Korea chair, senior vice president at CSIS, and my colleague who we do this podcast together. But we have some breaking news on NBC with Andrea Mitchell. Victor unveiled our latest report that North Korea is building an ICBM base near China, about 15 miles away from the Chinese border. And New York Times, great article by Cho Sang-hun, North Korea builds ICBM base near China as fears of new test loom. Victor, let me go to you first. What is the gist of this report and why is it making the rounds internationally? I mean, we've heard your satellite imagery and the stuff that you and Joe have analyzed has been seen now all over the world and kind of hard to break in with a foreign policy story when everything's going on with Ukraine. But North Korea, this this will do it. So let me talk about the context first, which is, you know, we've just been through a month where North Korea has done more missile launches, 11, uh, seven missile events, but 11 launches in January of 22, more than they've done ever in one month. Uh, culminating with uh, an IRBM test, the Hwasong-12 IRBM, on January 30th. After a period of relative quiet for nearly a year during the first year of the Biden administration. But as we enter the second year of the Biden administration, and as we are less a month away from South Korean presidential elections, North Korea seems to be really picking up the pace of these provocations. So this is the context in which we, and when I say we, it's really Joe Bermudez and his team, who are doing this work, incredible work, coming up with confirmation, really confirmation for the first time of this missile base tucked up near the Chinese border. There have, in the past, Jeffrey Lewis and others have suspected that there's construction going on there. But Joe's work on this is really the first in-depth study that has been done on Hejungri, uh, right, this this site, with confirmation that it is a missile operating base and most likely a missile operating base that will house you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles. So it's a pretty significant find by uh, Joe and our imagery team on this. And it's not something the North Koreans have ever confirmed, obviously. It's something that I'm sure people inside of government are aware of, but the general public is not not aware of it. And again, this finding is coming at a time when at least I personally suspect that North Korea will continue to ramp up the pressure on both the Biden administration and whoever is elected the new South Korean president next month. Joe, I want to turn to you. The report that we published shows that you've located an underground regiment-sized military base used for housing North Korean ICBMs. Can you explain what you saw and how you documented all this and, and why this is so critical? Certainly. I had heard about this in the early 20s. 
and I've been watching it. And as it's changed over time, its development seemed to mimic that of another North Korean missile base at Songnam-ni. Both these missile bases taken together are different in design and location than previous North Korean missile bases. So it, it, I was intrigued by it. When I went back and looked at the imagery, I could document for over 20 years the slow development of this base, which uh, is kind of curious that it took so long. But when we compare it to Sangnam-ni, we see that there is a correlation. As Sangnam-ni was built, it reached a certain point, and then the construction changed to infrastructure as opposed to the underground facilities. Then we see the construction here at Hojong-ni of the underground facilities. So it appears as if both bases designed along similar lines were codependent upon a limited number of specialized construction troops. The other thing that's interesting, as, as Victor had mentioned, was that uh, it's near the Chinese border and informed sources have let us know that it will likely house uh, an ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Regiment. Uh, this is significant because it shows that North Korea, if we take the time they took to build it, the fact that it's going to house uh, an ICBM unit, North Korea planned this in the late 90s and shows a great deal of forethought. And that forethought was considering what they then perceived to be the construction timeline of their ICBMs. So taken as a whole, it's actually an impressive development. This is one of the few bases that we've seen being constructed during the process that we have such clear close-up imagery of some of the facilities. If you look in the report, there's a real close-up of the drive-through missile checkout building, which is uh, very similar to others at all other North Korean missile bases. Joe, let me ask you this, and Victor, let me ask you this. Why is this location, 15 miles from North Korea's border with China, why is this location strategic? For one, um, this is, as we've do documented in our missile operating base reports, you know, there are basically three belts of uh, missile-based deployments as you go up the northern part of the peninsula, with the mo furthest most northern belt being the belt that we think where they would keep the longer range uh, ballistic missiles. So the fact that this might house ICBMs in the future at the sort of northernmost point of the peninsula would kind of follow that logic. The second, you know, at least it seems to me, is that having these, uh, these bases so close to the Chinese border would complicate any particular country's decision-making when it came to considering some way to neutralize that threat, whether that's through a preemptive or a preventive strike. I mean, it's no secret that even, even with precision-guided munitions, if you're talking about a site that is only 15 miles from the border with China, any decision maker is going to have to think hard and carefully about what that means in terms of, you know, potential blowback from China. So I don't think that's done unintentionally by North Korea. I think it's done very, very intentionally. So if I understand this right, if you're South Korea and you get into some kind of a minor skirmish or even a major skirmish and a shooting war with North Korea, it's a lot harder for you to try to take out a missile base near the Chinese border than it would be somewhere closer to the interior of the country. So, yes, I mean, it might it might not be harder in the sense of being able to target it, but it would certainly be much harder politically because you would have to consider what the ramifications would be 
uh, with regard to China? What if, you know, what if the missile attack was errant and you actually ended up, you know, landing something on the Chinese side of the border? Or even if you did strike the facility, you know, there might be, you know, negative externalities with regard to stuff that happens across the border in China. So it makes it a much more complicated decision for the United States, for South Korea or or for others. And in the crisis that you just described, there's not a lot of time. People don't have a lot of time to make decisions because, God forbid, we're in, in some sort of shooting war. Then it really becomes a race. Like, is it the North Koreans have a mentality of they got to either use it or lose it? And then people on the U.S. and South Korean side have to decide whether they're going to preempt or where they're going to try to defend against some sort of ballistic missile attack. And given that North Korea is now demonstrating capabilities like hypersonic capabilities and maneuverable reentry vehicles that are designed to defeat U.S. missile defenses, the defense calculation becomes harder and harder, which then leans decision makers more in the direction of preemption. Um, so you can see this becomes, you know, this is sort of the definition of crisis instability. So is it also that the location allows Pyongyang to keep its, you know, most serious weapons pretty far from South Korea's stealth jets and conventional missiles as well? Yeah, I mean, I do think that they, you know, they they are aware of what South Korean capabilities are and what they're trying to develop. You know, Joe knows this better than I do. One of the ways of dealing with this is to try to harden the facilities uh, against any sort of attack. Um, but then the other is to use the advantage of geography and try to put these as far north as possible, you know, given all the things that we just discussed. For our listeners, they can see all of this satellite imagery by logging on to beyondparallel.csis.org or just going to the csis.org uh, website where you can click right into this report. Joe, over to you. Uh, I'd like to pull on a thread both you and Victor have touched upon. This space is part of a complex network. Okay, there are at least 20 facilities that we know of distributed around the nation, which complicates targeting, you, you know, in order to, you know, achieve some sort of confidence that you've done something, you're going to have to strike at least 20 targets. I think all but two are hardened to a significant degree. This, this really makes the challenge of neutralizing them quickly uh, more complicated. And if you look at the map, as Victor said, they're distributed in three belts, and those belts themselves are distributed across the, the width of the nation. And what this means is uh, if you're using aircraft, you're going to require more aircraft, more aircraft than that to ensure destruction in your mind. Uh, for missiles, it means a lot of missiles flying around. Not everything is 100% reliable, and you're heading towards China presents another complication. North Korea is showing a good deal of practical, tactical savvy in doing so. And uh, we shouldn't belittle that. that. That's an important to understand. This is a, a potential foe who is smart, intelligent, and working hard with its limited capabilities. And this base is just one of approximately 20 ballistic missile operating bases that have never been declared by North Korea. Is that right? Correct. It also doesn't have, according to your report, doesn't appear to have been the subject of any denuclearization negotiations previously conducted between the U.S. and North Korea, even though they've been building this thing for about 20 years, we think. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, that that's right. I mean, the most of U.S. negotiations have focused largely on the nuclear weapons program, and in particular the reactor at Yongbyon, which has been the subject of sort of two agreements between the United States and 
North Korea in 1994 during the Clinton administration, the agreed framework, and then in 2005-2007, the, the six-party talks. There was an effort during the Clinton administration in conjunction with the 1994 agreement to try to negotiate a freeze on North Korean missile capabilities and missile development. Bob Einhorn and Gary Seymour were two of sort of the lead negotiators on that. You know, and they and they did try to make some progress, and it was connected with a potential visit by President Clinton to North Korea at the very end of the Clinton administration. But outside of that, there really hasn't been any negotiation that I'm I'm certainly aware of uh, with regard to the missile programs. I mean, I can understand the logic behind it in the in the sense that from a U.S. perspective, these missiles are delivery systems for nuclear warheads, and at the time, North Korea didn't didn't demonstrate really a capacity to be able to reach as far as the United States with those missiles. So the priority was focusing on stopping the warheads because you know that that posed the greater threat. But now we're in a situation where both the warheads and the delivery capabilities are getting better and better. And while North Korea hasn't operationally deployed, you know, ICBMs that can reach all over the United States, they are moving in that direction. I mean, they are developing and demonstrating a capability now that they did not have several years ago. And again, I think in many ways they've, I don't want to say surprise us, but they've demonstrated that their persistence in terms of trying to achieve these capabilities uh, has been rewarded in the past, and they will continue down this path. You know, North Korea is often described as opaque. It's not opaque in terms of what it's trying to do in terms of these weapon systems. It's crystal clear what they're, what they're trying to do, and that is to develop very powerful warheads and to develop delivery capabilities and delivery capabilities that can defeat U.S. missile defense. I'd add to that that what we're also seeing is their attempt, I don't want to use a nuclear triad, but it's certainly interesting to watch as they develop their submarine launch ballistic missile capabilities. So I have the, they have that second leg under development for the nuclear triad. Will they ever be able to achieve that third aspect, air launched or a cruise missile? They're moving in that direction. So they have a level of sophistication we just don't normally attribute to them. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Victor, South Korea is currently in a hotly contested, uh, to say the least, election season. What do they make of all this? Uh, yeah, it certainly is a hotly contested election. It's really the race is kind of neck and neck and we're down to about a month left. You know, some folks say, you know, North Korea does these provocations. They try to influence the outcome of the election, you know, towards the liberal side, the progressive side. I don't think that is relevant at all. I mean, I think they are doing this testing, you know, in certainly to see whether their technology is working. I mean, that's obviously a very important reason. But I don't think they care who wins the South Korean election. I think they want to put pressure on whoever wins that they have to deal with North Korea, like from day one. I mean, I think that's uh, what they're doing. And so, in a sense, they've put themselves smack in the middle of the South Korean presidential race, uh, forcing both of the candidates to respond to the January 30th IRBM launch, forcing the candidates to respond to our satellite imagery, uh, you know, Joe's work on satellite imagery. And I think that's what they're after, both with Biden and with the South Korean president. They don't care who wins this race. They want whoever wins to know that they must deal with North Korea as soon as they come into office. And what are the candidates in South Korea, how are they reacting to, you know, this latest report and development? 
You know, I think the progressive can the ruling party progressive candidate, Governor Lee, is generally his approach to North Korea is somewhat consistent with the current government, which is to really focus on engagement and inter-Korean reconciliation. While the opposition party candidate Yun, conservative opposition party candidate Yun, I think is also focused on engagement, but uh, really believes in sort of tit for tat, quid pro quo. You know, they're willing to engage if North Korea is willing to take steps to to cooperate. So I think they're both after the same thing, which is a way to sort of tamp down the tensions and achieve some sort of resolution of the nuclear issue. But I think their tactics uh, could be quite different uh, in the sense that Governor Lee, I think, will pursue engagement with a focus on trying to lift sanctions for North Korea at the outset, while the opposition candidate, Prosecutor Yun, we call him Prosecutor Yun because he used to be a prosecutor for the South Korean government, for the Moon government, would really focus on uh, explicit step-for-step, tit-for-tat reciprocity. That sure, they'd be willing to lift sanctions, but if North Korea takes real steps on denuclearization, which I think, frankly, is much more, the latter is much more in tune with what the Biden administration is thinking. What is the U.S. reaction to this? So I think the Pentagon was already asked in a press conference about the CSIS report, and they responded as we would expect them to respond, which is to say they're not going to comment on imagery, whether it's of a commercial nature or whether whether it's of a classified nature. Presumably they have their own imagery, right, Joe? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) One would make that presumption, yes. (laughs) But they're, you know, but they're very well aware of the missile threat, the missile and the nuclear threat from North Korea. So that's the answer you would expect if I was writing the talking points. Those would be the talking points that I would write. But, you know, it's it's clearly this sort of this sort of imagery that is important because I think one, it makes the general public more aware of how serious this threat is, and that even though North Korea may not be, you know, may not be testing nuclear weapons every week, this ship is moving. I mean, it is not sitting still. It is moving and it's moving forward in ways that are quite significant. And it also shows what an incredible satellite imagery team we have at CSIS, (laughs) led by (laughs) Joe, that has really allowed us to sort of really play an important role in, in bringing this imagery to the, to the public's view and making it an important part of the public policy debate. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that if we ever did get into a negotiation with North Korea again, that we could focus only on the nuclear weapons, that we would have to be focusing on the delivery capabilities as well. And we've clearly mapped these out and they're out there now in the public. So it's not something that can be kept behind closed doors. That's right. I mean, you know, we always forget that um, I think when we did, Joe will remember this, when we did our first report with regard to one of the bases that was very close to the DMZ, we were actually criticized by the South Korean government, the administration. I think essentially the criticism was these are not secret bases because we've known about them, right? Which to me was a very strange criticism because North Korea has never declared the existence of any of these bases. And according to UN Security Council resolutions, they are banned from testing or harboring or developing any ballistic missiles. So, you know, the notion that somehow these things don't exist because the North Koreans have never declared them is kind of crazy. 
<laughs> and and to say they're not they're not secret because the North Koreans have never declared them is also kind of crazy. So um, so you know again, I mean, it's important to bring these to the attention of the public policy discussion. And you know, of course, we're not the only ones who do it. You know, there are other folks who do this as well. But this particular one, Joe, you know, has been and his team have been working on for a long time. You know, they've produced by far, it's not even close, the best study on this on Huajingri, the best study that's out there on Huajingri, using both historical imagery and more recent imagery. I was going to say other organizations aren't lucky the way we are to have Joe Bermudez and Victor Cha looking at this stuff. I also recall that on one of the reports we did, then President Trump tweeted that there was nothing new to see here. And he actually, he didn't blame it on us. He called the New York Times fake news because we broke the story with the New York Times. So he called, he didn't call CSIS fake news, but he called the New York Times fake news and said there was nothing new to see. But we all know there was something new to see. (laughs) It was interesting to see how the governments were all saying there was nothing there. Uh, Something like there's nothing behind the curtain from the Wizard of Oz. Well, gentlemen, this is, Fascinating discussion. Anything either one of you want to add before we wrap? I want to point out that this is one of a number of reports, detailed reports, on the development of North Korea's weapons of mass destruction and ballistic missiles that we're engaged in. We are putting them out as we complete them. Uh, There are many challenges, but with a lot of success and support from uh, people, uh, not only at CSIS, but around the world, we're hoping to uh, cover the entire North Korean WMD spectrum. Victor, last word. Yeah, I mean, I just going back to something that Joe said earlier, which is, you know, we focus on the nuclear weapons and now we focus on the ballistic missiles. But the other aspect of the, pro, you know, there are other aspects of the program that are aiming at the so-called triad, right? A delivery capability from the ground, from the sea and from the air. And, you know, the other aspect Joe and his team have been looking at has been also the sea launch capability, the sea launch ballistic missile capability. And so we have more work coming on that. Actually, we just published a report, uh, another report the day after this this imagery of Huajingri came out. Um, we have another report looking at the, the shipyard, the, uh, the Shimpo South shipyard, where they have been working on submarine-based capability. So we're trying to keep track of all of these things. But when you step back, the bigger picture is... You know, North Korea is not standing still, even if it's if it's not popping off nuclear weapons here and there. They are developing their capabilities and they're they are working very hard to try to develop a survivable capability that could not be taken out with a first strike, in which case they would then sort of cement themselves as the weapon state. Gentlemen, thank you for this really fascinating discussion. Again, you can see these images at our Beyond Parallel microsite. You can also reach them via CSIS.org. Gentlemen, thanks very much for helping us understand this on this episode of The Impossible State. If you have a question for one of our experts about The Impossible State, email us at impossiblestate at CSIS.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? 
And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.